Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. I am Mike, your host, and today is going to be a draft review and free agency preview episode. So uh, let's get right to it, uh, in part because it's already midnight here where I'm recording. So uh, the draft, of course, we know the Pistons came away with the star Thompson and Marcus Sasser. So let's first talk about a star. So I went into the draft feeling sort of anxious that the pick was going to be Jarris Walker, whom I just really didn't want. At the same time, I was going to be pretty shocked if Walker was the pick, if only because the offensive fit onto the team right now is just so bad. I don't think he was ever realistically much of an option, as I mentioned in the last couple of episodes. Maybe it was two episodes ago. Just this front office is opaque to the point of duplicity, (laughs) to the point of possibly spreading false rumors. And I don't necessarily blame them. I mean, that's not a bad strategy. But I think Walker was just out there as kind of a distracting possibility. Who knows? Maybe they were really considering him, but I don't think so. I I really don't. And once we heard that Cam Whitmore was falling because of bad workouts, I was almost positive that it was going to be a star. Nonetheless, I was still anxious up until the pick was made until I saw Adam Silver come out with his goofy grin. And then I knew it was that he was getting to announce a set of twins being taken one right after the other. Same thing happened with uh, David Stern, the late former commissioner, when he announced Markeith and Marcus with consecutive picks back in, man, I don't remember exactly which draft they went in, maybe 2012, uh, probably 2011, actually. So uh, let's talk Asar. So this pick, it's kind of like it was with Ivy last year. Uh, I felt better about Ivy after the pick was actually made because I was confident the front office would not have taken him unless they were sure in particular that his shooting was going to come along. And I think that the same is true of Asar. I do not think that the front office would have would have selected him, in, you know, in part just because being without a shot is a huge problem in today's NBA, but also considering the need to have spacing around Caden Ivy and next to Jalen Duran, who's unlikely to ever be a shooter. Uh, I'd be shocked if they had picked him without a high degree of confidence that his shot was going to come along. And I think Asara is a reliable shot away from probably being a strong starter, even if his off-the-dribble game doesn't develop. And if his off-the-game, oh, excuse me, off-the-dribble game does develop, along with the shot, of course, then he's got an all-star ceiling. So let's talk again. I know I went over this in the last episode, but let's talk again briefly about what he does bring to the table. So got to assume the shot's going to be there. And you'll be coupling that with very strong transition play, both as an attacker and a passer. Just good IQ and good passing in the half court in general. He's a strong cutter. He's a vertical spacer. I think that even if his off-the-dribble game, you know, strictly from on the ball doesn't come along, he'll still be able to attack closeouts, you know, burst into the lane very quickly because he is highly athletic. That is a major asset. He is highly, highly athletic. And so he'll still be able to burst into lanes, whether that's to elevate off of two feet and completely destroy the rim or to just make the right pass you know he's he's got high iq you can count on him to make not only the right pass but a good pass i think he'll be more of a secondary playmaker of course but definitely a valuable combination of characteristics as i mentioned that he's highly athletic you know he's got good burst he's a good weeper not quite as good off of one foot though capable excellent off of two he's agile he's got really good lateral mobility and and so on and so forth high top speed long also He's got a seven-foot wingspan. Pistons are fixing to have a pretty long front court, at least as things are right now with the starting lineup. 
I mean, Ivy's the, the wingspan shrimp, assuming that Isaiah Stewart... Well, excuse me, this doesn't count Boyan. But you look amongst the youth, Cade with his seven-foot wingspan, Jaywin Duran with, uh, I believe, a seven-foot-five, Asara seven-foot, uh, Isaiah Stewart, who for better or worse is probably going to start a power forward this year, is I think seven-foot-six. Ivy is the shrimp at around, I believe, six-nine. So that's nice. Always good to have more length. Uh, and in terms of his defense, just a fast, switchable, athletic wing who can probably be able to defend one through four if he puts on some weight to defend a power forward. Should be fairly good at rebounding as well. If the shot doesn't come around, around excuse me, it could get ugly. I know I've harped on this many times in this show before, but the ability to shoot threes is just critical for perimeter players. It's the mandatory skill in the NBA right now. Uh, more to the point, also, I mean, it's not just having the three which allows you to take that very high percentage shot and participate as a play finisher from the perimeter and space the floor for your teammates. Also, the inability to shoot threes is crippling because you can do none of those things and opposing defenders can just sag off of you and make life much more difficult uh, for everybody on your team for the offense at large. This is no longer a league in which elite defenders can survive just on, on defense alone. You see the likes of Matisse Thibel who's an excellent defender, just cannot get a shot together. Don't be fooled by what he did in Portland, or I shouldn't say don't be fooled. Maybe he will get it together, but he was very strong at first and then regressed. So just the cost of not being able to shoot is extremely high for a perimeter player in today's league. So the points at which unless you're, say, a superstar Draymond level defender and are on the perfect team, and Draymond is on the perfect team on offense and because his value is heavily dependent upon the quality of his teammates and also the system. He's in a perfect system under the perfect coach alongside the greatest perimeter shooter of all time and another of the greatest perimeter shooters of all time. So a very exceptional situation for an exceptional player who can basically, despite the fact that he's a terrible scorer, still be very valuable on offense is just an interior pivot for those players. Even Curry is primarily an off-ball player. So anyway, these defensive specialists are just too costly to have on the floor if they can't shoot. That's why they are virtually extinct. And if you want to look elsewhere, perimeter players who aren't able to shoot, basically you are either a superstar who has a team built around you, or you are on the fringes of the league and probably on your way out if things don't change. Like think Giannis, for example, who is a fantastic player in every capacity but shooting. Like he's one of the great help de- roaming help defenders of all time. He's, of course, just fantastic off the drive, a solid passer, very strong into whatever. I don't need to talk about Giannis. You all know how good Giannis is. Nonetheless, he has to have a team of shooters built around him because otherwise his incapacity as a shooter is a big problem for him and a big problem for his team. Jimmy Butler is surrounded by, he's he's not really a shooter in the regular season. Uh, He manages to get by with only three other players really built around him. Bam is the other one. Bam helps to space the floor a bit with his passing, but it's also just that Eric Spolstra is the best coach in the league and is able to do things that nobody else is, like have two non-shooters in the floor at one time. Uh, but also, of course, Jimmy is a monster in the playoffs, an absolute monster. It, it, it bears mention that the Heat barely made the playoffs. This was not a good roster. Jimmy Butler really turning it on in the playoffs was a critical component to the Heat making it as far as they did, really to them even making it to the conference finals. Of course, he got injured and ran out of steam. But the point is, and I know I just went on a major A side, You, he, Asar needs to have the shot. Otherwise, it could get ugly. In terms of his fit, 
The Pistons have been willing to start qualified rookies on day one. Absolutely. So if his shot looks good, if if they like what they see on a training camp, if they like what they see him in preseason, then it's not out of the question that he could start at small forward. And then you probably move Boyan to power forward. Or at the very least, Wayne Casey was willing to do that. Uh, who knows about Monty? I think, I guess that's a factor. It certainly is a factor. I would count, however, on him coming off the bench at first. Probably going to see Boyan at small forward. And I think the Pistons are going to want to give reps to Stewart at power forward for better or worse. So I think he'll probably start there. I think it's a chance that a star starts. And that would bump Boyan off the lineup, assuming, excuse me, that would bump Stewart out of the starting lineup, assuming that Stewart excuse me, assuming that Boyan is still on the team, and I believe that he is likely to be unless the Pistons sign somebody in free agency to replace him. And I'll talk about free agency later. So, like I said, it's like last season, in that I like the pick a lot better now that it's actually been made, because I just, I really, really, really doubt, just like I did with Ivy, that the front office would have selected him if they weren't very confident in his shot. Let's talk Marcus Sasser, who whom the Pistons traded two future second-round picks to move up and select him at number 25. Out of Houston, four-year guy there. He'll be 23 at the start of the season. Without shoes, he's about six foot, one and a quarter inches. Of course, teams in the NBA almost invariably round up, even if you're just a little bit above the inch line. So he'll be listed at six foot two in the NBA. He's got about a six foot seven and a half wingspan, 195 pounds, quick. Strong, though not explosive. Quick, but not explosive. Enthusiastic mo- mover off the ball. Uh, great motor overall. Pretty tireless worker. He's a shooter. This is his primary characteristic. He's a really good shooter, really good perimeter shooter. Quick release, can relocate and shoot, can pull up from three, flash some step backs in Houston. But on the catch and shoot in particular, he's very, very good. He shot 46% on catch and shoot threes in his senior season at Houston. He's a decent pull-up guy from mid-range. You never know if that's actually, excuse the cracking voice, decent pull-up guy from mid-range. You, of course, never know if that's going to translate to the NBA, but useful skill, solid handle, and a decent, you know, smart but unspectacular passer. On defense, he's rugged, very engaged, smart, works hard, bulldog mentality. He's a very, very engaged defender. And, of course, he's the sort of leader and high-character, extremely hardworking guy whom Weaver loves. Downsides. Uh, number one, it's tough to be a six foot one against six foot. He'll be listed as six foot two. So let's go with that for uniformity's sake. It's hard to be a six foot two player in the NBA. It's really hard in switch schemes, particularly in the postseason. Guys will exploit you on switches, and you can be a super hard worker, but that's only going to go so far if the guy you get switched onto is like six or seven inches taller than you uh, with a longer wingspan. Uh, it's C. Denver against Miami, for example. My a six-year-old nephew who's obsessed with the NBA uh, was asking me in the finals why I was saying Spolster was such a great coach when he was having Gabe Vincent defending Jokic a lot of the time, which of course wasn't uh, deliberate, but you've got a really short guy out in the court. Like the opposition, especially in the postseason, is really going to focus on switching on to him. So that's tough. Every inch matters in the NBA. It's really a game of inches. Every tiny advantage you can get makes a difference, you know, makes a difference, and including when, or and these these little disadvantages matter as well. So you know he'll be able to hold his hold his own, I think, against some small forwards because he's got a solid wingspan and physically he's he's very strong for his size. But yeah, switches are going to be a consideration. 
Uh, though he is a great shooter, he does not get to the rim very well. Even at the NCAA level, he in his senior year, he only averaged about one and a half field goal attempts per game at the rim. Also didn't shoot them too well. Just he's not explosive, and he's not a very good vertical athlete. Yeah, he's just not really very good at getting there, and he's going to have, I would say, if anything, even more trouble at the NBA level. Also, not a lead handler. This is not going to be a Killian replacement, or at the very least, is unlikely to be. Again, he is a solid but unspectacular passer. Wasn't really much of a lead handler, even at the NCAA level, and at the age of 23, it's just pretty unlikely that you're going to find another gear, especially at the NBA level. So decent but not the sort of primary handler guy, sort of guy, rather. Uh, the fit is, yeah, just to cap that off, he's more of a six foot two off guard. Uh, so the fit is weird. Again, and that's primarily because he is not a lead handler. More of a six foot two off guard, his fit in the roster is just going to be strange. The Pistons are presumably going to want a primary handler on at all times. I don't know, who knows, maybe they're confident in Asar taking on that responsibility while Kate and Ivy are off the court. Though even Ivy, I would say, is more of a more best qualified to be a secondary handler more of just a you know make the drive and find the open guy sort of passer whereas your average primary handler is looking several steps ahead like Cade for example not a knock on Ivy it just takes a certain type so the only guy on the team outside of Killian who has major issues because he's horrendously bad as a scorer uh, just can't shoot can't really create anything off the dribble except occasionally a mid-range shot that barely meets efficiency criteria and even during his good stretch this last season, he went to it way too often. And though like 48%, which is what he was shooting during that stretch and pull-up twos, is an efficient number. I mean, you look at this in context in the half court. If that's where you're getting most of your points, that's a very inefficient player. And for the most part, he was nowhere near that good. So killing just costs a lot to have on the floor. He also, needless to say, is not going to be breaking down any defenses. His lack of explosiveness definitely doesn't help, but he also just avoids contact like it's a threat to his life. And, of course, can't shoot threes, which, for the aforementioned reasons, makes life more difficult on everybody else and makes him a lot less effective on offense individually. But, you know, notwithstanding that, Killian, of course, is a very strong a very strong passer and a very smart player. And, you know, could be a lead handler if things were different. Uh, he's still... Probably the second most qualified to do that, though, again, he is at the present a very, very negative contributor on offense and on the court in general. So Sasser's fit is just kind of strange. Like, where is he going to slot in? He can't be the primary handler. He's got to be on the floor with the larger guard. Who's going to be the primary handler alongside him? If Killian's shot improves, who knows? Sasser may not see many minutes this season, unless Burks gets moved. There just may not be very many minutes for him. But... You know, that's at least a leader off the bench and a cost-controlled four-year rookie deal with a low cap hit. So not necessarily what I was looking at at pick 25. I mean, what I would really have liked to see there is an actual, you know, lead handler who could come in and push Killian in, in the late first or with that pick 31 if they'd kept it, but there really was nobody fitting that bill in the late first or early second. However, I, I would have preferred to see a higher upside guy who didn't really have quite the same weird fit in the roster. Sasser's almost possibly destined to just be an undersized shooting specialist who can do a little bit of passing. Good player to have. Is he going to play in the playoffs for a good team? Hard to say. But he'll be a character guy off the bench at least. Or excuse me, a character guy on the bench in those situations possibly. So uh, nonetheless, looking forward to seeing these two and uh, the other guys from the team who will be there at Summer League. Uh, 
indications are, or at least from what we've been told, that Ivy and Duran may play a game. We'll probably see Livers for one or two games, and even Wiseman might play. These This front office for the Pistons really likes using Summer League. It is actually very uncommon elsewhere in the league for established players, guys who have come in and done well in the NBA already, like Ivy and Duran, to see minutes in Summer League. That's very unusual. You know, I'm in favor in part because it means I get to watch some honest goodness Pistons who have already been in the NBA, you know, play in the summertime. Uh, but also, you know, maybe you go there and work on things. It's like the best five on five you're likely to find between the end of the season and training camp. So at least unless injuries happen, obviously that's a risk. And on the subject of injuries, if I were the Spurs, I would not play Wembenyama in summer league. I think health is going to be his primary nemesis and just don't give him the opportunity to get injured. It's completely unnecessary. So uh, I'll preview free agents, excuse me, I'll preview Summer League more extensively in next week's episode. I'm actually really excited. I'm going to be at the first weekend, so the first two games of Summer League. So if you're going to be there also, uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to meet you. So let's move on to free agency, which begins at 6 p.m. Eastern on July the 30th. And... The moratorium actually ends, or begin, excuse me, ends about a week later. Moratorium is just, you have to wait to actually sign the players. You can negotiate with them and agree on deals in principle, but you can't actually sign them until the moratorium ends. can't remember if it's five days or seven days, uh, whatever the case. In practice, it's extremely rare for a team to reach an agreement with a player and have the player go back on it. I think the last time it happened was DeAndre Jordan in 2015 which was, in my opinion, a pretty hilarious situation. Probably not quite so funny for the Mavericks, though they did get a completely washed version of DeAndre Jordan a few years later. Uh, nonetheless, I think also before him, it was like 2013 or 2014 with Jason Kidd, who went back on a deal. Now this was 2012, I think. Went back on a deal with the Suns to sign with the New York Knicks, if I'm remembering correctly. In any event, yeah, extremely rare. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but yeah, extremely rare. So... Uh, the Pistons are going to be entering free agency. As of today, they picked up the options of Alec Burks and Isaiah Livers, which is incredibly unsurprising. I don't think they'll keep Omaruya. He was just kind of a warm body last year. It didn't really do too well with the Pistons. They're going to have a lot of guys in the roster already as it is. Uh, we'll know this by Thursday because the 29th is his deadline or the deadline on his player options. Player option, excuse me. Uh, maybe the Pistons who will have... I believe 12 guys under contract. If they decline, Omarui will make a trade. Who knows? I would say Burks is the likeliest candidate, but personally, I wouldn't trade him because he's an elite spacer and, and a good veteran who can create some offense off the dribble and the Pistons need all those things. Uh, so something to bear in mind is that the depth chart is very full. Uh, some of the young players, I'd say primarily in Livers and Bagley, will be fighting for minutes as it is. And the team is going to want a lot of these young guys to get developmental reps this season. Despite the fact that they have said that they're going to pivot to trying to win games, I think that is more in the context, or I'll put it this way, I think development is still going to be the priority. What you're going to see is the primary difference is that guys will not be allowed to endlessly play through bad performances. And Casey actually put it that way uh, toward the end of uh, last season when he said guys just are not going to be able to, to are not going to be allowed to play through mistakes like this next season. And I'm quite certain at this point that Casey knew that he was going to be in the front office and that this was the front office's plan. So let's say Killian, for example, plays as he did the last two seasons when he got an endless, endless leash 
and big minutes, despite the fact that he was one of the worst overall contributors in the league. He had a decent stretch last season, but on the whole, he was most often very bad. So if that happens, I think he's going to lose minutes this season. He's not just going to get to continue playing no matter what. And I think that will apply to other young players as well, some less than others. I mean, you'll see, of course, Cade and Ivy and Duran and Masar Thompson getting to play through a lot of mistakes, but the older ones, uh, maybe not quite as much. And I'd say that would include Bagley. That would include Livers, though he really hasn't even played a full NBA season yet. Still, he's on the older side. He's going to be 25 when the season begins. And, I mean, he's not a priority. You know, he's, he's not a development priority. He's a nice-to-have player if things go well. If he can shoot threes and do everything else he has been doing already, then maybe he's a guy who can be like your ninth man in the playoffs. So let's talk depth chart, and it's already pretty full. At point guard, Cunningham, Hayes, I think you'll see Sasser, even though he's not a pure point guard, swat in his third point guard. At shooting guard, you're going to be giving minutes to Ivy, Burks, Thompson, maybe Sasser. At small forward, Bogdanovich, Thompson, Burks, Livers, power forward, Stewart, Bagley, some to Boyan, Livers at center, Duran, Wiseman, Stewart, Bagley. So, I mean, I don't doubt that the team would move off of Bagley's contract right now if they could, but I don't think that's likely to happen unless he's salary filler in a trade. The Pistons are going to, again, they're going to want to get a lot of development minutes to guys that's going to continue to be a priority. And just the rotation is quite full as things stand. I think we've heard, and I believe this is the case, not based on any information. I just think that uh, that the front office will do this, that Rodney Magruder is likely to be back as well. That'll bring us to 13 roster spots, assuming nobody is traded. Again, could be a trade, but who? I think Alec Burks is the likeliest possibility. But I think that it's a very strong possibility that he will stay. This all is to say that it could be a quiet free agency. There is no need for the Pistons to spend this cap space this summer. The clock is really, it kind of ends after next summer because Cade's presumable, hopefully, a max extension it would kick in in 2024. Uh, the Pistons would, of course, extend him after free agency. I think Isaiah Stewart, I don't think Killian Hayes is going to get an extension and rookie extensions have to be signed during the offseason. Prior to the fourth season on the deal, you can't give a guy in a, a rookie, a guy who was on a rookie scale contract, an, an extension in the middle of his fourth season. That can't happen. So Isaiah Stewart could very well get an extension this summer. I think he'll get between 12 and $15 million a year. So the point is that the Pistons have quite a bit of cap space that they can roll over. So there's no need to spend just for the sake of spending. I think sending, excuse me, spending for the sake of spending is also just not a great idea. You could see the Pistons sign some guys to one-year deals. I don't know whom that would be. I'll get to that in a little bit. Or you could see them take on bad salary for money. Excuse me, bad salary for assets and then just buy those players out. I don't think that teams will be dumping salary, not many of them, to go after guys in free agency. That's because this class is not strong. But you might see teams dumping salary along with uh, some modest assets to get out of the luxury tax. And if the Pistons take on bad contracts, I think that's going to be the likeliest source. So full rotation, not much space in the roster, could change. But uh, I don't think the Pistons are going to be dropping a bunch of these young players, needless to say. There's also the added complication that veterans are unlikely to join a roster on which they are not guaranteed any minutes. And certainly that's going to be true of guys in their 20s, cheap players, like I've heard... uh, uh, Watanabe brought up 
And it's like, this is a guy in his 20s who wants to get paid. And you want to say, here, come to a team on which if the young players are doing well, then sorry, you're just not going to play. Don't think that's going to happen. Down on their luck players, I'm likely to join too. Again, these players want to go to teams where they get minutes. There's very little reason for them to come to the Pistons and risk getting no minutes at all. That's not how you redeem yourself in the league. So let's talk options. I don't like this free agent class. I've said it before, of course, and this is not like a special insight. This is just how things are becoming is that the free agency is weak. If you're a good restricted free agent, you get kept. If you're not a good restricted free agent, then you're not all that attractive, of course. Teams extend their good players. It's rare for good players to hit free agency these days. Certainly very rare for superstars, but just rare in general. Uh, is it necessarily going to be better next summer? No. Still, at the same time, I would rather not have the Pistons just spend for the sake of spending. So let's start with who I do like. Jeremy Grant. be very happy to have him back on the team. He would be ideal for, I think, a multitude of reasons. I mean, he's a solid creator, guy who can be third option on a championship team, strong floor spacer, strong defender, long, good help side guy, highly athletic, and so on and so forth. We already know everything about Jeremy. He would be expensive, of course. I don't think he's going to max deal. That would surprise me. But you'd be starting at upwards of $30 million, I'd say almost certainly. And that's the going rate for a good starter. And it is short of 25% of the cap. Yeah, so... Sounds like a gigantic salary, but it's really not actually that big in this day and age. Salaries are just going to continue going up. That's how it is. It'll continue going up uh, along with the salary cap. Uh, Something I should note, because I've seen this idea that there's going to be a new TV deal and the cap is going to skyrocket again. And the new CBA limits cap increases to 10% year over year. So we're not going to see 2016 again. That was ridiculous. The players didn't want cap smoothing then. Adam Silver a seat of the demands. I think Adam Silver is a pretty weak commissioner. The players thought they were going to get paid in the events. The only guys who really got paid were the guys who hit free agency in 2016. You had some guys decline player options to enter agency, enter free agency, excuse me, in 2017, only to find that all the cap space had dried up the previous summer. And also the league got treated to the Kevin Durant Warriors. So it really didn't work out for the vast majority of players. So would love Jeremy Grant to come back. Pistons would certainly make room for him. All indications are that he's going to stay in Portland. So I think it would be a surprise to see him go elsewhere, the Pistons included. Uh, If the Pistons want to sign a veteran role player, you can look at Torrey Craig. Good for depth. Decent three-point shooter. Solid defender. Very, very much a depth player. The guy who's best suited to be like the the fifth man, the very, very distant fifth option on a playoff team. And maybe that's the role he likes. Like I said, these veterans coming to the Pistons may not see any minutes if the youth play well. And, you know, beyond that, this just free agency class is very spare on guys whom I actually like. I think the Pistons could easily get by without really signing much of anybody. And, I mean, it, it's going to be another developmental season in, in the sense that development is going to be the priority. It's going to be the major bellwether of success. Yeah, I mean, I guess just, just when I look down the list, the, the names which I think are realistic and whom I would be interested in is fairly small. You know, you could look at, hey, you know, if Derek Rose wants to come here on a minimum deal, everybody loves him in the locker room, you know, no matter where he goes these days. But he's not likely to play. I think the Pistons have as many veteran character guys as they need. I don't believe Corey Joseph will be back, for the record. But you never know. Maybe the Pistons say we really like the guy, and we'll choose him over Rodney Magruder. Like, at least he can play third-string point guard as a lead handler, even though he's not particularly good at it. 
I think Corey gets a bad rep. It's not his fault that he started two seasons ago. It's not his fault that he got big minutes last season. That was because of Cade's injury. Two seasons ago, it was because the Pistons, because Killian was terrible. And the Pistons did not want Cade to have to handle the ball on every single possession. And Corey, and Corey Joseph was the only option. We stick and hit open threes and handle the ball a bit. So uh, let's talk names I've seen brought up, that uh, of which I'm just not a big fan. Not trying to be a negative Nancy here. Again, I think there's just a lot to not really like about names in free agency. Uh, one I'll bring up, which is less that I don't like him and more that I'd be shocked if he goes anywhere, is Austin Reeves. So Austin Reeves, because of the Gilbert Arenas provision, it will be very, very easy for the Lakers to keep. He's only going to cost them about the mid, about the the early bird exception, which is around the size of the uh, non-taxpayer mid-level exception for the first season. Also close to that for the second season. They really don't need to worry about his impact upon luxury tax. It'd be very, very easy for the Lakers to keep him. And I, I just I don't expect that they will let him go. It would be like, why would they do that? So uh, let's start with Cam Johnson, uh, the guy I've seen most brought up in connection with the Pistons. Now, what is Cam Johnson? He's a pretty strong three-point shooter. He can do a little bit of creation off the dribble. You know, he's a pretty smart player. You know, he plays solid defense, if unspectacular defense. Of course, he's got a lot of experience working in a Monty Williams system, uh, which I mean that he's literally only ever played in a Monty Williams system. So, solid role player. Um, why am I not extremely interested in Cam Johnson? Uh, number one is because... Well, he's going to cost quite a bit of money to pry away from the Brooklyn Nets, who have absolutely no incentive to tank and a lot of incentive to be as competitive as they can be because they don't own their picks for quite a while. There's no point in them tanking. They might as well just try to be as good as they can be. So I don't think they're just going to willingly surrender him short of a gross overpay, which the Pistons would be making for a role player who, it should be noted, is injured a lot. He has been an injury risk dating back to his time in the NCAA. He has missed a lot of games in the NBA already. And I don't think it's really unreasonable to say that he's a potential taking injury time bomb. And repeated injuries not only mean that you're off the floor a lot, they can permanently reduce your performance. And just like a, a minor loss in mobility and athleticism at the NBA level, Cam's not a super athletic guy. He doesn't really depend upon it, but you can still slow down. That can hurt a lot. But the first key ability is availability. If you're not on the floor, you're not providing any value, but you're still tying up cap space. So I'm just not a fan of the Pistons conceivably spending like 28 to $30 million on a role player like Cam Johnson, only to have him probably play 60 or less games per season. And you've just spent a lot of money also on a player who is a solid role player, but that's the kind of money you pay to a much, much better player. And so by all accounts, Tom Goris is going to be willing to pay under the luxury tax. Even that I think will probably have limits. And beyond that, of course, you suffer from hitting the second, the second apron now. Pistons are well removed from that. But, you know, even if you have the cap space, I mean, you're going to have to pay Cade. You're going to have to pay Ivy. You're going to have to pay, hopefully, other young players who pan out. So that is a factor. So not too interested in Cam. I think he'll stay with the Nets. Though possible that I'll eat my words when the Pistons make him a huge offer. I just hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that doesn't happen. Harrison Barnes, I've seen brought up too. Harrison Barnes is nothing special limited scorer and a med defender on the wrong side of 30. So decent guy to shoot threes by all means. He's okay as a pull-up guy uh, from inside the arc, but when I say okay, I mean not very good. He's not good at reaching the basket. He's not a good passer. And so I, I just don't see, also don't see the Pistons giving him a long-term deal. It's like he's just not really going to offer a great deal to this team at this point in time. 
I think he is unlikely to take a short contract at anything less than a tremendous overpay that the Pistons probably would not be willing to make and would possibly not even be able to give him this year unless they trade someone because at the age of 30, which is when a lot of players start to kind of go into decline, he's probably looking at his last major payday now. You know, let's uh, say he, yeah, he's just, he's, he's coming off a decent season. This, this is his best time to get his last long-term deal. I don't think the Pistons would be the ones to give him that. I don't think he's really all that good of a player. Grant Williams, uh, no thanks. Good shooter on open threes, which you got a lot of with the Celtics, but nothing else. Limited elsewhere as a scorer, not a creator, undersized for power forward, a little bit slow for small forward, just nothing special. I think he's not going to get as much money as he's looking for, but uh, you know, also overlap. Let's say that Isaiah Stewart, and I think he will, becomes a, a good shooter. Uh, you know, where are you going to play Grant Williams with all the other guys you have on the team? I don't think Isaiah Stewart has much to offer at power forward, but he's definitely going to get minutes there. And yeah, I, I just don't see that Grant Williams with the rotation, what it is, is necessarily even going to get minutes on a team, you know, a roster like this. And I just don't think he's a very good player. There's PJ Washington, who is, you know, he's all right. He's a decent role player. Uh, he's a decent shooter. He doesn't really create much off the dribble. He's just more of a, a shoot threes and finish offense created by other sort of player. He's a little bit of a paradox in that he's best off offensively at center. That is actually where he had his best season. This is in 2021-2022. But he can't really play defense there. He's a terrible rim protector. Uh, That said, I think also the Hornets will probably want to keep him. Who knows what the new management over there will do. But I think that when they have a guy whom they perceive as a decent role player, you know, he's a restricted free agent. They have all the power over him. I don't think he's going to be super sought after by another team to the point where he gets a big offer sheet. So I think he's staying with the Hornets. And again, I think that includes the Pistons not giving him a big offer sheet. Decent role player. Not a guy worth breaking the bank on. I think he's hit his ceiling. Draymond Green, who knows if he'll actually leave the Warriors. My opinion is that I think it would be awesome if maybe if the Warriors were even interested in this for the Suns to swing a sign and trade because I think Draymond would be the perfect guy to play interior pivot on offense to that team of shot creators. Uh, very unlikely to be of interest to the Pistons, very unlikely to even sign with the Pistons, short of a completely gross overpay. Uh, Draymond is extremely smart on defense, and he's a really good passer, uh, intense veteran, you know, emotional leader. Like I said, ended up in the absolute perfect team with the Warriors. That was very fortuitous for him and for them. If you want to see what Draymond is when the quality of his teammates decreases and the Pistons aren't going to be anywhere near this bad on offense, but look at 2019-2020. Just Draymond's worth just because he's so limited on offense. I don't know how it happened because he was actually genuinely a decent scorer until 2016. Or at the very least, in that 73 win season, he was, you know, like a 38% three point shooter. But basically, you lessen the quality of his teammates, then suddenly the fact that he's a terrible scorer who can't shoot becomes much, much bigger issue. And also, just the Pistons are not really in position to be paying a guy like him at his age. Uh, on the team's current timeline. And again, I don't think anything less than a, a, a gross overpay would bring him to Detroit in the first place. So again, sorry, folks. I'm just going down the list of guys and why I don't want them. These are the notable dudes. Karis Levert uh, had more of a success as a three-point shooter this season. On the whole, a pretty poor three-point shooter. Guy who attacks off the dribble a ton and isn't particularly good at it. Perennially unreliable, ball dominant, not good off the ball. Just not the kind of player I see the Pistons targeting. Kyle Kuzma. Trap player. 
great for a treadmill team like the like the Wizards apparently used to be because Kyle Kuzma is another guy who is not very useful off the ball. He's a shaky three-point shooter, just really doesn't offer very much. You're going to get the most out of him only if you play him in a way that allows him to handle the ball and grade his own offense on heavy volume. And he just does not justify that role on a good team. Also a pretty mad defender. So not a guy I see the Pistons being interested in. He's going to be looking for a lot of money. I think he'll get less that he's looking for. He's not a bad player, but he's just kind of a trap player. And the last one I should mention, I know there was talk, I think from a somewhat accurate source, I don't remember exactly, but I, I remember it being a decent source, that the Hawks offered the Pistons DeAndre Hunter and number 15, exchange for number five. Something I should clarify, DeAndre Hunter has a very undeserved reputation uh, for some reason as a strong 3 and D player. Uh, DeAndre Hunter is a mediocre three-point shooter on low volume. He is bad at attacking the rim. He does not like to pass the ball, and he loves his mid-range offense. He is on offense effectively a play finisher with a bad shot profile, and he's kind of a shaky defender. He has been a big disappointment for the Hawks in relation to his draft position at number four in 2019. And yeah, just not a particularly good player. It does not surprise me that the Pistons were quite disinterested in that offer. So uh, all of what I've said is just to say that while we could be surprised, I would not be shocked if this turned into a pretty quiet free agency period. It just could be a quiet time. So that'll be it, folks, for this episode. did turn into a bit of a shorter episode than I had anticipated, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, possibly a function of what turned into a pretty late hour for recording. But uh, in any case, as I mentioned, next week is going to be a Summer League preview episode. So until then, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in that next episode.